We are back. Hey, it's Shane here, and I wanted to drop in as we kick off season four of the podcast and just say a huge thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you for all the messages and reviews. I really appreciate it. This podcast has a very simple objective. Ask great questions of talented people to help us all become more effective leaders. Today on the podcast, we're specifically talking about leadership. My guest is the one and only Holly Ransom, and she's spent a decade studying leadership, interviewing incredible luminaries, including Barack Obama, Condoleezza Rice, Sir Richard Branson, and Malcolm Gladwell, just to name a few. From that experience, she wrote her new book, The Leading Edge, which is a brilliant book sharing some of the culmination of this research, along with a number of case studies. Today, I give her a call to find out all about what she's learned. Hello? Hi. We'll do it live. Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Liftoff! In 2012, Holly Ransom was named one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Most Influential Women, making her the youngest person to receive that honour. Known as one of the world's top keynote speakers, CEO of her own company, and now author of her first book, The Leading Edge, Holly raises a call to arms for people to step up and turn their restlessness for change into the reality of a better world. She's interviewed countless household names that you would know and have heard of, and she brings a wealth of her own experience and personal anecdotes, such as what you can learn from attempting a triathlon with very little training and why you should always listen to your grandma. It's a privilege to have her joining me on the podcast. Holly, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thanks for having Shane. I'm excited to be here. I um, was reflecting in the lead into this conversation about where our kind of worlds cross paths. This is our first time actually having a conversation in person, but you've kind of been at the peripherals of my world for the last couple of years. And I'm pretty sure there was a mutual connection somewhere who mentioned your name. And it's this, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Beta Meinhof phenomenon, which is like, you know, when you go in to buy a car and then that, you know, all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. <laughs> You are that phenomenon for me. Someone mentioned Holly's, uh, your name to me and went, and since then you've just popped up in every kind of sphere that I'm in. And literally a few weeks ago, I was at the IABC world conference, like a global conference. And then there you are in the screen in front of me. What's the deal? Like you just keep showing up. You are, are you just everywhere? It's just science from the universe. We are obviously meant to be crossing paths and doing stuff together. So there you go. The universe is trying to hint it. Maybe, maybe we weren't taking the subtle hints. So it's tried to get louder and louder for us in the last little while. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. I spent the weekend with my head buried in your book and finished it off, which is uh, just such a phenomenal book. And we're going to talk about it a little bit later uh, later on, but I'd love to get um, give people a chance to get to know you a bit better. So three fast facts. Uh, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Okay. So I was born in Western Australia, though I have been a Victorian for probably seven years now. Uh, my first job was working uh, split. I actually can't remember which happened first. Uh, the summer I spent as a 13 year old working in the back room of star surf and skate on Murray street in Perth, which is so not as glamorous as it sounds. I think it sounds cool to say your first job was in a surf store. I was literally out the back tagging board shorts for every day (laughs) for the better part of the summer. Um, (laughs) that or coaching junior sport, like I coached, I remember some sort of 10-year-olds in basketball pretty early and I was involved in sports coaching a lot as a, as a teenager, so it would be something in that. And then what do I do now? 
Whole mixed bag. I live a wonderful portfolio career life where I'm lucky enough to get to host and moderate some incredible conversations with the work that I do as a speaker and a curator and a convener working all around the world, which I absolutely adore. Um, crazily enough, I'm an author, which I can now say out loud for the first time. So I just finished writing my, my first book, which I'm so excited that you've read. And I'm very interested to hear, you know, the stories that resonated for you and the ideas in it that resonated for you. And then I do a lot of work in the strategic development and leadership development space. So that's what my, my firm does. I love working with clients uh, all over the world, um, really supporting people to get the best out of themselves collectively and individually as well. I love it. And one of the things that, you know, when I first heard about you, obviously the things that you see are the kind of peripherals of what you do. So we, I, I was really inspired seeing what I would describe as your platform. So the people you've had opportunities to connect with, the things that you've done, and you're obviously a, a hugely impressive person. But I think one of the things that I've noticed and started to learn a little bit more that I've been more inspired and moved by is really um, your purpose and, and hearing and reading some of the stories in your book your desire to want to help people lead themselves better and actually lead the impact that they need to have in the world was the thing that really moved me more than, you know, obviously the things that most people see are the, the opportunities that you've had. Um, and so I'm, I'm pretty in, in um, looking forward to kind of hearing a little bit more about you and that kind of purpose. One of the questions I have to lead with, right, because you're doing lots of conversations, you've had lots of conversations, and in your book you described yourself as the master questioner, right? So <laughs> this is what you do for a living, right? You ask good questions. I do love asking and questions. And so my first question that I have to ask you right now is what is the question you're not getting asked enough? Like what is the question that you just go, I wish people would ask this question a whole lot more when it comes to the work that you do or even just about the book? Ooh, great one. I think – do you know what's really interesting? So a question I got asked, which was a very aggressively worded question, we'll put it. I won't name the reporter that asked it, <laughs> but in the early media for the book, one of the people asking me a question said, do you really believe that everyone can be a leader? And isn't that a problematic idea to be espousing? Because doesn't that mean that you're basically setting people up to fail and isn't that a challenge enough for your generation as is because you have all these un unrealistic expectations, which was fascinating. And I just paused for a moment and went, wow, wow, we have very different views of the world. But I think that gets to the, the nub of something that I, I really hope the book can encourage more conversation around and that I feel like we need to be talking about more and I, I wish we were being asked more questions about, which is really that piece around who, who we have created the narrative, the story, around leadership to be and look like and who we have left out of that. And consequently, to your point, Shane, around like these role models we look for, who's missing from the story there? And if we're reading these stories as kids and as young professionals and right throughout our life, who does that mean is going, oh, I can't be a leader? Oh, that's only for the people that are running Fortune 500 companies. That's only for the people who were born with leadership capabilities, which is just fundamentally not a thing. You know, in all the, the research I've done in this area, don't get me wrong, we are born with characteristics that might be predisposed to leadership, but the idea that leadership is kind of an innate trait versus a learned set of habits, behaviours and skills that we continue to work on and refine is just bollocks to me. So that for me is what I wish we were having more of a conversation about and really what I've hoped to do in the book is to challenge the idea that leadership has to be X big, that it has to look like leading in this sector, that it has to be someone who leads in a particular set of characteristics or ways because I think leadership is far more diverse than we give it credit for. And I think one of the most important things at this moment in time that we're having this conversation is that everyone reclaims their agency when it comes to leadership. 
and the idea that the way that they lead, whether that's with their partner and kids, whether that's with their family and friends, whether that's in the context of their team or their colleagues or their collaborators in their community, whatever that looks like, that that matters enormously. And it's only through each of us doing that little bit better and taking a really mindful lens, an intentional lens to how we live and lead our own purpose, that we're going to be able to find a way to tackle the problems that are ahead of us. So that's the conversation and the questions I wish we were having more of a a chat about. Oh my gosh, please just keep talking on that concept because I think that one idea, <laughs> if, if people, I mean, we're going to cover some ground in this conversation, but if people walked away and just reflected on this one question, who have I left out of my narrative of who gets to be a leader and who doesn't get to be a leader? If that was one question that people reflected on, I mean, in the first few minutes of this podcast, that's value adding for people in this experience. Um, where, where do you think a lot of our predisposed narratives around what leadership looks like come from? Where does it come from? Where does most people's story about who gets to be a leader and who doesn't get to be a leader? Where do you think that starts for people? That's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons I got inspired to write the book was uh, I was recently overseas. I've, I've just completed my master's and one of the things I wanted to go and do while studying my master's was was to do the kind of literature review on leadership. So to go and look at the library and see the stories that we tell. And part of it, I think, comes from who we've lionised. And there's a couple of angles to that that I think are interesting. One is who those stories are, and they are overwhelmingly men of a particular endeavour often, like a military leader, an elite sports coach, mm. Jack Welsh type Fortune 500 leader, maybe more recently, like one of the Silicon Valley unicorn CEOs or something like that. So that's interesting in and of itself. The other thing that's really interesting is more often than not how we tell those stories is they're a solo individual. And don't get me wrong, there are some incredible leaders that are worth studying. We want to sit at the feet of the Mandelas and, um, you know, the leaders of Mother Teresa's and people like that. But the idea that they got there on their own or they weren't part of leading a team or that part of their power as a leader was their ability to create followership and that those followers mattered enormously, it, I don't think that story is helpful too. And then the flip of that is one of the stories I opened the book with is when I was fortunate to interview Gina Davis and talk to her about her work at the Gina Davis Institute of Film and Television. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it started in about 2008 basically to benchmark movies and TV shows. So the top grossing things that are dominating most of our eyeballs, most of our consumption, and how diverse are the people that are featured in those stories. And it's really interesting because when you go and do the work, it's overwhelmingly lacking in diversity. You realise pretty quickly that the stories that we're putting in front of young people, even at a very early stage of their life, are not all that diverse. So when Gina went and did it, and and originally it was very basic, so it was just on gender equality, it was looking at the top grossing films, only about 17% of characters in the crowd scenes were female and more than 83% of the narrators were male. And you're like, it's no wonder, as I did a few years ago when I walked into a, a school of girls to speak on International Women's Day, 800 of them, and I said, girls, you know, there's this Harvard study that says there's five criteria for a job and I'm talking to uh, 11-year-olds to 17-year-olds in this audience, 800. I said, if there's five criteria, how many do you think boys believe they need to meet before they'll apply? And I had all these crowd shout out, you know, one, zero, <laughs> and the answer's two. And I said, girls, how many do you think we believe we need to meet before we'll apply? Got five, sixes being yelled out. And while we can <laughs> laugh at that, I, I remember coming away from it truly horrified that 11-year-olds already innately knew the answer to that and could yell it out collectively in unison like that. One of the things I think is great about Gina Davis's work is she's looking at a lot more intersectionally now. We're looking at people with 
disability, people of different um, ethnicities, uh, people of different sexual orientations, because there's a much broader way that we can be thinking about the diversity conversation. But I think there's a lot to be said about the narratives that we tell, who it is we're holding up as, as role models, um, and the way that we talk about them too when they demonstrate characteristics that look like leadership. They can often come off very differently depending on who it is that's exhibiting them. Like there's a very interesting narrative at the moment surrounding the Olympics with Simone Biles and saying no and take, putting her mental health first and the, the criticism of a young black female doing that. It's, it's fascinating, these conversations that we're having right now. And I, I think um, one of the reasons I've really intentionally approached the book from a view of wanting to diversify that narrative. So there's 60 plus case studies in the book. As you would have seen, Shane, you know, there's uh, 42 different sectors, 20 plus countries, equal gender split, every sort of generation was in part because I hope everyone can start to see themselves in the diversity of those stories and can go, wow, if they can do it or contribution as a leader can look like that, maybe I can make that contribution, maybe I can lead. I mean, one of the things you touched on the book was this idea of kind of narrowing your topic and then widening your sources and, and kind of exposing yourself to so many different perspectives on an idea. And, and I think you described in one of the chapters of the book is do the work to have an opinion, right? <laughs> and so one of the things that I, I look at you and people can get really inspired by the people that you've connected with, that you've interviewed, that you've had conversations with over time. What I see is a whole lot of intentionality around who do I need to actually look at and widen my sources and get the perspective of so that I can start to build my own leadership narrative that's a helpful one. Has it been really intentional for you to find people and seek out people to help shape your own leadership narrative? Definitely. I mean, I appreciate that observation. Um, It definitely has from the point of view of seeking, like I'm a big believer and I know I quote it in the book and, and many of you will have heard it. I think it's attributed to Stephen Covey originally, but that notion of seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. And I think whether that's understanding a subject matter from a technical standpoint or the history of it, um, one of my favourite ideas in the book comes from an interview with um, Professor Genevieve Bell who talks about learning our history not so we can find answers but so we can ask better questions. So that idea of understanding the story as it's currently told and asking ourselves those questions who wasn't part of that conversation? Who did that leave out? What were the blind spots? How's the world changed that might mean that that's not still the way that we should be thinking about that problem or that opportunity? So without a doubt, and then I think that the second piece is just there's so much wisdom to be gathered from people who have already been thinking deeply about the world or having a go at trying to solve these things. And we can do ourselves a great uh, service by seeking to understand, you know, what worked, what didn't, how'd you do it? What would you do differently if you did it again? And one of the things I've been so humbled by over my own journey, and Shane, I'm sure you found this over the course of your podcast too, the willingness of people to share, the, the generosity with which people will open up and say and quite candidly what worked and what didn't, um, frustrations, uh, challenges, strengths that were absolutely critical, things they're so grateful that they did because they never would have been able to find their way through a problem without it. And that all, I think, can help inform and allow you to take a much more focused approach in the way that you might choose to make your own contribution. Or it might just embolden the fact that you you were right, that the, the blind spot that you thought exists does, and you better keep cracking away at it because it matters. But whatever it is, I think it, it can be very clarifying having those conversations. And I think for those listeners who maybe haven't tried that before, because It can be really intimidating to reach out to people that you admire and ask them if you can spend some time with them and ask questions. 
um, as I said, I've been so humbled by people's willingness to do that. And Shane, to your point around purpose, the most important thing to just get clear on before you do that is what's your why for asking those questions. There are so many people I would love to pick the brains of, but I don't have questions that are worthy of them yet. And until I do, I won't reach out and ask for their time. So it's just really important that I think you're matching your purpose or your reason why with the person you're going and asking the questions of. And when you can articulate that strongly, more often than not, you will get a yes. You'll get someone giving them, giving you 15 minutes, 30 minutes of their, their time and go and seek those learning conversations. You know, start, start there as a way of building context for what it is that you're trying to do with your own purpose and impact. Mm, how do you determine what's a worthy question? I mean, if coming back to, obviously it's deeply connected to an, an alignment between a, a, a strong sense of why, which, you know, for people who are listening within the book, you've got some really great practical tips on um, reaching out to somebody and how to make that introduction and what you should be doing. Um, but I mean, one of the things you, I, I just want to touch on what you just said, which is like, I want to make sure I've got a question that's worthy of asking. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you determine and reflect on, is this something that is worth me reaching out to ask the question on? Good question. I think to, to begin with, it definitely starts with that connection to the, the why. And then I think it's having done your homework on that individual. So it's getting really clear on, you know, for some, and there are all different reasons you can choose to reach out to someone. One might be because they're technically gifted at the problem area that you're looking at at the moment. And so you might have quite technical questions that you want to ask them. You know, some people you just deeply admire their career and impact. And so you want to have a more general conversation about how did you do it? You know, did you have a plan? Uh, what went wrong? How did you pick yourself up and go again? All, all that sort of stuff. So there can be very different directions to the conversation. There's no right or wrong. I think that's probably one of the biggest things. As, as weird as it sounds to say, you know, uh, until I've got good enough questions, that is a judgment I'm entirely making of myself and my own clarity around what I'm seeking answers for. That's not someone else telling you that they're good enough or not. That's not saying they have to fit a pro forma I don't I don't think any of that is useful. And I also think that's the reason I encourage people in the book to go and seek um, learning conversations versus this idea of mentors. I actually think we need to take some of the pressure off ourselves with this. Um, the idea that this is going to be a long-standing relationship, the idea that this is got to end with you getting a job offer or it's got to end with you being invited to hang out with that person again. I always think what a privilege I've got to spend 15 minutes, 50 minutes, whatever it might be with this individual and how lucky am I to have the opportunity to learn in that time period. If all I come away with is a single insight from that conversation, that was worth it. And sometimes the person is as good at helping you clarify, you know, why you wouldn't want to go after a career or that that's not the approach that you want to take to solving a problem as much as they might give you direction on how to do it. So there can be all different benefit that come out of the conversation. And I think one of the things that's on you as the the seeker, the questioner, is in every conversation to find that gem, find that benefit. So I don't think there's a a kind of a cut and dry on what makes for a good question. I think it's just being really clear on why you want it, being very clear on why that's the person to answer it for you and have thought about the different ways that you want to appreciate the dimensions of that. So not just having a, a single question, um, making sure that you've got a couple of different destinations that you want to reach over the, the time that you get with that individual that can help kind of colour the answer that you're after. Because more often than not, i found, often when I ask a straight down the, the middle of the eyes com- question, 
I don't get the answer. And if I think about going it four different ways, it might be the third or fourth that actually gives me what I was really seeking. So I think also challenging yourself to go, what's a couple of different ways I can ask this to get to the nub of what I'm seeking. Mm. And I think in that, um, one of the things that you touched on in the book is around this age of misinformation. And, you know, again, when we, if we come back to this idea of we're, we're doing the work to shape our, our leadership narrative and making sure that we're asking questions that help us to understand what, what leadership means, what leadership looks like, and ha- have a helpful narrative around that. We want to go and seek out the right sources. And then we need to kind of distill the information we're receiving down and making sure that we're actually finding information that's helpful and it's not misinformation. I mean, what, when you reflect on some of your experiences asking a lot of people, how are you distilling down to what's helpful, what's not helpful for your own leadership narrative? Mm, great question. So, and, and there's a bit of learning that comes from just going through this enough times, I think, to, to learn some of this. One of the things we touch on in the book that I think is really important in the context of this, so there are two things. One is going and getting information generally. I guess the way I'm interpreting, though feel free to redirect me, is more when it's coming to your own leadership journey and kind of the direction you might get from responses to questions in that. I think one of the most important things there is to understand boundaries uh, for yourself in terms of what you want to invite someone to speak into. I've always found, like, and the, the way I was describing this to someone the other day, is do you want to invite someone into the tug of war or do you want to invite someone to your side of the tug of war? And that different answers to that are valid at different points in time. But what I'm meaning by that is if you invite someone to weigh in on a decision that you're currently in the process of making, they will be forthcoming with an opinion. Sometimes their opinion being added into the mix is not that helpful. If you are adding it in, it's really helpful to know the lens that it's coming from. And I've got, I speak from getting this wrong, I can assure you, and I share a couple of stories of that in the book, where people have got a really different risk profile to you. They've got really different motivations. Their career has played out a certain way. And so with the best of intentions, and often unconsciously, they're projecting what worked for them onto you. But that may not align with your purpose, your values, uh, your your balance and kind of ideal mix of things that you want in your world or the way that you believe you can best have impact that might differ from the way they think you can best have impact. So kind of being able to acknowledge all of that is really, really important. And that changes the question. Sometimes you're going to someone and saying, hey, I've decided, for example, I want to launch my own business. And I'd really love your advice on how I can do that most successfully versus the question of, hey, I'm thinking about launching my own business. What do you think? You're going to get two really different sets of answers depending on the questions there. And I think it is really important to step back when you've got that advice to your point around kind of distilling and reflecting and go, okay, what was the lens that was being shared from? Is that something in my gut initially that resonates as being true and right and real? Is that something I almost have an aversion to? And what does that tell me? So always just being curious about how a conversation shows up because our gut is so often on the money with this sort of thing. And it can help us distill whether that's something we need to sit with and spend more time on. Okay, cool. I got some really helpful advice in that conversation that I maybe need to think about a little bit further. Or is that something that I need to go, okay, that was a good conversation. Maybe that conversation taught me a little bit more about how to not have a conversation next time because actually it's thrown me, it's changed the way I'm talking to myself. I'm now feeling like I'm doubting myself more than I was at the start of the conversation. And on the whole, that wasn't all that helpful and what can I kind of learn from that? So that would be my kind of big advice in in that space is to just be really mindful of boundaries, be mindful of are you inviting them into the tug of war or to your side of the rope, um, and then to mm. be taking that time to unpack afterwards and just do that gut check 
and to process. And Shane, I think to your point, if you're going to have a lot of conversations, use everyone as a learning conversation on how you had the conversation as much as the learning you had in it. So you can be getting more and more useful information for yourself each time you're having one. The thing that I am learning more and more, kind of hearing you talk and reflecting on what I was reading in your book, I observed this natural curiosity that you approach all of your conversations with. And I think that's probably why a lot of people around the world have often invited you to interview them because you have this really natural orientation towards curiosity. Whereas I find that sometimes there can be a tendency towards defense mechanisms or outrage whenever there's kind of differencing opinions. You seem to invite and welcome through curiosity a difference of opinion and you use it to be able to expand your own um, understanding and narrative and view and opinion on the world. How do you sit in that space of curiosity when, I don't know, maybe there's a natural tendency to want to defend your opinion. How do you hold those two kind of tensions um, in mm. simultaneous balance, which is I have to have an opinion, but I also need to be open and curious. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think I definitely have a curious disposition. My grandmother has always described me as forensically curious. So I think there was something about me that was just born wondering. But I think what's interesting and that the, the hypothesis I make in the book is that actually all of us were born that way and we've actually kind of uh, I guess schooled ourselves out of that by virtue of the way that we've absorbed the world around us and the quest for perfection or being in environments that don't perhaps you know lionize the answer versus the question asking or don't encourage questions to be asked full stop and so each of us being able to build that muscle gradually of going how do I just try asking a question every day. Okay, how do I try ask a question in every interaction I'm in? Okay, how do I challenge myself on asking a better question, you know, or a follow-up question or something like that? I do think that's a muscle each of us, each, I mean, any any time you spend around a small child will remind all of us that we are born curious. <laughs> so I think it's just how long we hold on to it and how consciously we try and curate our environment and our habits to make sure that we keep that up. That for me is a really important reminder. When it comes to resisting the want to defend your opinion, don't get me wrong, to begin with, all of us have trigger issues that it's really hard to just not resist defending your opinion on. And that's particularly stuff I think that gets at your values or anything that's to do with identity. The thing I think I've learned is that if I'm going to be able to do it, and this is part of what we talk about in a couple of chapters in the book, but certainly in the one that you mentioned on doing the work to hold an opinion, if I'm going to do a persuasive job of bringing people to my worldview, then I need to understand their perspective better than they do first in order that I can engage with it. It's a bit like no great debate is ever won by not engaging with the other side. You've got to be able to take on their case and rebut it and say, okay, I know you've said that, but have you thought about X or allow me to illuminate a different perspective of that or, you know, that's interesting. Can I understand that a little bit more? Okay, here's how I see that. So I think it's only through questioning to the point where you can understand it um, and doing it from the right frame of mind. It's really important. We've all been at the victims of passive aggressive questioning. It's really important when we are questioning someone who we may not see eye to eye with that we do try and do that from a place of genuine curiosity. People feel our judgment and all that judgment does in questioning is make people put their defenses up. And I'm a big believer that we, we've got to do a bit better job of giving people grace. No one, no one moves their opinion because someone tells them they're wrong and they've got to change or says they're an idiot. We've actually got to understand, you know, why someone views the world the same way and try and use that as a departure point to go, okay, where's our common interest here? Where might we actually agree and maybe we can work from that common ground? Okay, that's interesting. Like there have been times where I've had conversations like that and I've gone, wow, I've never thought about it way, that way. That's really interesting. 
Um, and it's made me understand or change my view on a topic, maybe not always the full way, but certainly it's moderated a position. So that would be my kind of bit of response to, to that question, I think, in, you know, um, doing that work on building your own curiosity muscle and then seeing curiosity actually as a way of building your capability to defend your opinion more strongly and as well making sure that that opinion is one worth defending. You know, like it is really important that we are open to the idea that sometimes we've just got it wrong. And if we've got it wrong, one of the most mature things we can do as a leader is to say, wow, I've now had new facts brought to life and I have a different opinion. And, you know, this is my, I always say, this is my opinion until I change it. Like, and we should actually see it as healthy that we change our opinions because we're in a world that is moving so dynamically that I'd be horrified at the thought I still held every opinion that I did 10 years ago um, or five years ago or last year. You know, we should continually as humans be taking on new information, learning, evolving and adapting. Yeah, that's the experience I, I get every time I log into Facebook and it says, here, I'm reminding you of this post you posted 12 years ago. <laughs> and I think to myself, gee, I am so, so glad that I'm not the same person that I was 10 or 12 years ago. I and love one that. of the things I think I, that's so valuable about this experience, right, is that you you allow yourself and give yourself permission permission to change and evolve and to grow. Um, last season on the podcast, I was I was doing an interview with Michael Bungay Stanya, and one of the things we were talking about was this idea of power. And he was saying, you know, how do you step out of the space of, you know, obviously power and privilege to allow another person to step into that space, which is a really helpful conversation. But one of the things he said is that we always get really excited about this idea of being able to speak truth to power. And he said, the thing that I would reflect on first is just to make sure it's not just your truth. And the only way we can expose ourselves to this idea of it's not just my truth, but it's actually being open to listening to what other people's experiences are around that um, and doing the work to understand, like, what is this someone who really? holds a completely contrasting view to that? Um, really important things, right? Yeah. And, you know, just making me think of a, a story I share in the book of one of my earliest mentors when I started in business. Um, John, who had a very particular way of teaching. And I, I loved it because I'm a kinesthetic learner. And so I feel like his way of teaching was a way that really stuck in my brain and, and worked. He never lectured. He often um, illustrated or told in a way that was interactive. And so the learning was much richer for me. But one day he came to coffee. I was 19 at the time. And he, he put a dice down on the table and he said, what can you see? I'm going, all right. I don't know what he's playing at, but let's play along. I can see a dice. And he said, be more specific. I said, well, I can see a six. And he said, well, I can see a one. Which one of us is right? <laughs> so they're going, well, like we both are. He said, bingo. And he said, one of the things I never want you to forget in life and in leadership is firstly, that just because you have a perspective does not mean it is the only one. We are both looking at the same object here and yet we have seen different things. And yet you've said both of us are right. So the ability to hold, to your point earlier, Shane, like that idea of, of different perspectives in tension and acknowledge that ours is not the only view is really important. But equally important was what he said next that I've reminded myself of many a times, particularly in rooms where I've often been a, a lone voice or a minority in, in some way. Uh, just because there are other perspectives doesn't mean yours doesn't matter. And so you shouldn't question or, you know, maybe um, not consider your opinion valid or truthful or real by virtue of the fact that there are a multitude of other opinions and actually making sure that's voiced and heard as part of a conversation is really critical. And his whole mantra was, you know, the better job that we do in life and in leadership of reminding ourselves everything's a dice and how many sides of this have I got in view? And often there are many more than, than the six sides of a dice, let's be real. But that idea that we're being intentional around 
okay, I've got this perspective. How many other perspectives am I seeing? Who can I reach out to that might provide some of those perspectives that I probably don't have here? And the idea that collectively, when we've got as much of that in view as possible, we're going to make a better decision. It's a lesson that has stuck with me and has informed certainly the way that I try to lead from that moment forward. I can sit there and I can visualize that whole experience when the kind of, when it would have dropped for you to go, actually, that's a, there's a really valuable leadership lesson and experience to take out of that. One of the things that I've loved, I interviewed um, Kendra Banks recently from Seek, and she was saying, the thing that I've always told myself is that if I'm in a room, I'm in a room for a reason. Um, and if I've got a seat at the table, it's, and I feel like I'm the most least experienced person in the room, or I don't have anything to add. I still remember that I'm there for a specific reason. And I think that's a really nice tension that you've highlighted, which is, you know, we're in there and we've got a voice and we've got a contribution, we've got a perspective. And at the same time, our perspective can also look different to other people's and it can be expanded and it can be enlarged to be able to um, create a, a bigger picture perspective, right? Yeah, completely. I, I love that. I love that whole notion. And it's one of those things um, in the book, we talk about this idea of it, the most important thing to begin with is the thing that we're telling ourselves and and that importance around the story that we're telling ourselves when in those moments we might be making ourselves small or making it sound like we don't matter or that our contribution isn't that critical or, oh, we've already had three people talk here so I won't put my hand up and add my bid in. You know, it's important to start with that. Like that mantra would almost be something I love. I love what Kendra shared there, you know, that I would repeat to myself in my head uh, in those moments and go, I'm in a room, you know, if I'm in a room it's because I matter and, you know, me being here matters. Um, and that idea that making sure that we're reminding ourselves of those uh, little little truths in situations where it's all too easy for sometimes it to be like oh okay you know maybe maybe I'm not I was invited for because I'm a token here or maybe maybe I'm not really meant to speak up or maybe this question's a little bit too controversial or out of left field just to remind ourselves that that matters in those moments um, and as well that cultures that uh, I guess are true about embracing diversity and inclusion would welcome that perspective and that contribution. It's a really good way of us helping to continue to refine and identify whether we're in a place that really um, does embrace the values that we might hold to be true and important for ourselves. This whole conversation, I, I'm I'm finding there's so much value for, for me personally, but I'm sure for people who are listening around reshaping that leadership narrative that they hold about themselves. And there's a number of things we've talked about, which is around, you know, who gets to be a leader? Well, everyone can be a leader and we need to reshape some of that internal narrative around, you know, who do I, I believe can be a leader and how do I find people that can actually help shape a narrative that's helpful for me? Stay curious, allowing that to be able to, to adjust and change over time. It ultimately leads me to this question because this is all very much an internal focus around leadership. But one of the things that you do so elegantly in the book is translate leadership from both a, a leading me and leading from my edge to actually, you know, obviously an, an external focus on leadership contribution to the planet. Why is leadership so valuable for the planet? Like, why is the, why does it matter to the world that we step into that space and start to lead? Well, I think, I mean, and I'm sure Shane, this will resonate with you and certainly with a lot of your listeners. I, I think that idea that our quality of life the state of the world is someone else's responsibility is a, a pretty big abdication of responsibility. Um, that that idea that, oh, you know, climate change, yeah, that's on other people, that's above my prey grade. Oh, yeah, you know, the end of the pandemic, that's, don't get me wrong, everyone's got a role to play in these value chains. I'm very grateful that there are brilliant scientists that are working on far more complex understandings of some of these factors than I will ever be able to comprehend. 
but that idea that I have a role and that I'm stepping into that role and I'm not diminishing um, my agency and I'm not diminishing my responsibility, I think is absolutely critical because I think most of us can look around right now and go, you know what, it's got to be able to get better than this, doesn't it? And I hope each of us to some degree is, can tap into a motivation, whether it's for self, whether it's for people that we love and care about, whether it's for the by virtue of the altruism that we've got for the, the general state of the planet, there's a want, I believe, and a responsibility to pick up the baton where it got handed to us and run it further. And right now we've got a, a whole series of challenges that are facing us as a global community, none more pressing than climate change without a doubt. And the pandemic obviously is a, an immediate, urgent, top of mind one that's you know still causing harm and, and damage to people on a daily basis and loss of life. You know, for me, that's why it's absolutely critical. We don't we can't tackle complex global problems with a handful of people going, cool, I'm a leader, let's go do this. This takes the collective energy and mobilisation. This takes people in their own little way, speaking up, organising, um, voicing, uh, making contributions, actively going out there and doing the work, the armies of volunteers. You know, I think about challenges that have faced the world historically. I've been involved with Rotary throughout my career and, you know, nearly single-handedly that, that organisation eradicated polio from the planet through a web globally of millions of volunteers who have been out there administering, you know, polio vaccines in some of the most challenging parts of the world. Remarkable. And some of the stories that we feature in the book of people just choosing to make their purpose part of how they show impact in the world. Um, you know, in the sense of really going, okay, I don't just believe in that. I'm going to, with my time, treasure, talent, whatever, make sure that I'm voting with my feet, with my, my resources, with my agency, with the power that I've got communicating to my network. Um, there's so much to be said for that. So I, I just couldn't be a bigger believer that as much as everyone has the opportunity and the capability to be a leader, we each also have the responsibility um, and stepping into that is is critical at a time when leadership is really under threat. We've got record levels, low levels of trust. We've got an age of misinformation and increasing kind of polarisation of opinions and perspectives. Um, we've got challenges that are really global, that are really complex, that cannot be solved overnight, that often as well there is absolutely no silver bullet. There's going to be need to be a multitude of different strategies pursued in a multitude of different ways by all of these different collaborations of people and organisations and governments. So that's that's the, the new landscape. And part of what we try and paint the picture for in the book is this is the new landscape of leadership. This is the one we've got to build those new skills and tools to be able to, to be able to lead in and find a way through. But this is also what we should be both challenged to step up and lead in, but also excited about the opportunity that presents itself at such a dynamic period of the world to turn around one day to our grandkids, um, and be able to say, we did something here. We made a really significant difference and our generation are going to be remembered on this planet for the fact that um, that was how we responded in a moment of true global challenge and made sure that the world was better by the time you came along. I think one of the things that I reflect on is that we often spend a lot of emphasis and put a lot of time and emphasis on what does it look like to be a leader? And it's the, mm -hmm. the focus on me, you know, how do I be a leader and not enough emphasis on what leadership is for. And it's the outward expression of what leadership can do for the planet. And I think you just touched on so many big, really important challenges that the world is facing right now that every single one of us can play a part towards as, as a leader. Do you ever just look at it and just feel a little bit overwhelmed by the vastness and the bigness and the big challenges that are out there? 
Oh, definitely. And I, and I think it's easy to. And that's why I think we have to bring back our focus to our sphere of influence. One of the activities that really helps me ground in that is one that I share that Paul Ruse taught me. And many of the listeners will probably be familiar. Paul's a, a premiership winning AFL coach, a very, very good player in his own right. And he has this really simple activity where he encourages people to get out a business card, which is a little bit old school. I've got to admit I had to make one. I didn't actually have a business card at the time of doing this activity. (laughs) Um, But that idea of maybe it's for the purposes, you can also do this idea of being your LinkedIn profile, I guess, and your byline. But instead of it being whatever your title might be, managing director, marketing director, um, you know, intern, wherever you might find yourself in the ecosystem of the world right now. Get rid of your professional title and instead write your name and then chief role model. And the thing I love about this activity is it anchors you to why you get out of bed. You know, who are you, who are you doing this for? Is this for partner? Is this for kids? Is this for your family? Is this about your community? Is this uh, for teachers about the classroom of students that you're in front of every day? Um, whoever it might be, for me, that really allows me two ways. It doesn't necessarily mean my focus is limited to them, but it certainly means that's who I'm trying to make sure at any given moment, that's who I'm role modeling for. If they're watching, how am I making sure I lean into this problem? Am I doing the brave thing? Absolutely. I'm going to be doing the next brave thing every time. Am I going to be doing the purposeful thing? Damn well going to be trying to every single time. Am I going to be making sure that I speak up in those moments and I ask challenging questions? Absolutely. And I think for me, that helps me anchor to why it matters and in those moments where it can all feel a little bit hard and overwhelming it's the thing that allows me to keep my feet to the fire um it you know my own fire in that way and I think that that's really really important so one of the things I would say is to start with your world what matters and then think about in that context how am I role modeling how am I showing up and that will change you know for some of you maybe the way that you're thinking about running teams and organizations Maybe for others, it'll mean, wow, if I'm role modeling, I need to be getting involved in the community more. I really could be doing some more volunteering or maybe we do need to be thinking about how we make a donation every month to a cause we really believe in. There are small little ways each of us can think about changing our behavior based on whatever we believe role modeling for the people that matter to us most will be. And I think we should acknowledge that we are that role model. It's just how intentionally we are choosing to be that in any given moment and how aspirational we want to be about that too. How much do we want to challenge ourselves as to what the best version of us looks like and the impact and the influence we can have on others? Because we are absolutely having that each and every day. And if we can just change that 10% better, 10%, I'm going to try that little bit harder on this. I'm going to do that little bit more there. I'm going to be that little bit more intentional. Um, I want to be clear, more doesn't necessarily mean more time, more effort. It can be that calibration simply of thoughtfulness consideration, choice, that can make an extraordinary difference. Such a helpful self-reflective exercise that probably in the busyness of things, we don't sit down to kind of calibrate enough on that that kind of um, reflection on uh, am I a role model and to who and in what way? Um, just those small little questions that you could be reflecting on. It kind of leads me back to the question that we almost started with. Do you believe that everyone can be a leader? A hundred percent. Yeah, I really do. I really do. And I think that comes from the idea that each person is already a leader in some way, shape or form. If a leader means that you are having an influence on the people in your immediate surrounds, that your contribution, effort, thought, voice, etc., have an impact, an outward impact, which they absolutely do, then each and every one of us is a leader. Now, it's a question of how big a leader, 
how what we are leading, how we are leading. Don't get me wrong, there's so many different ways we can cut a leadership equation for sure. But that idea that every one of us is a leader is something I, I fundamentally believe. And what I hope I've done with this book is try to provide more evidence that anyone can, uh, try to provide a greater sense of collective responsibility that everyone should, and have tried to share a set of tools, really pragmatic heartbeat to the book with regards to how we can actually, if we're ready to take that challenge on, we're going to challenge ourselves aspirationally to be that role model leader for whoever we define that group we are leading for to be, then this book is packed with ideas and exercises and resources for how we can go about doing that. And it, it really is in terms of spending the, the weekend reading the book. It's full of personality. It's full of um, perspective from around the world, which is so, so valuable um, to help reinforce and refine your own kind of leadership narrative. I'm kind of reflecting on where this conversation has gone from this idea of, you know, what do I believe about who can and who can't be a leader? And what does that say about the, the current narrative that I hold about what leadership looks like and what can I do to kind of enlarge that perspective, be curious, find the right people, distill down to what's important and ultimately do the work in order to be able to have an opinion on what my kind of I hold firm to the kind of the narrative that I believe leadership can be. You know, one of the things that you say in the book is that, you know, it's, it's a helpful way to finish is to reflect with a question. And I love that your book is littered with these really practical and insightful questions that you could be asking. So if you were to leave someone, it could be one of your favorite reflection questions from the book, or it could be a question that comes to mind from you out of this conversation. What's a question that you would leave people to reflect on out of this? I would probably pick up on where we kind of ended there and encourage people, even if you can take five minutes for yourself after listening to this conversation now and answer the question, who am I role modeling for? And if I'm role modeling for X, what is the best way I show up or how do I show up as the best version of that role model for them? And try and be quite specific. Um, don't just say, oh, I do the right thing. You know, it'd be, be quite pragmatic or challenge yourself to be as quite specific as what does that mean? It means I always ask the question that's burning in the back of my mind. I always speak up and give voice to new ideas when I have them. I, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book all the time is I, I challenge myself continually to do the next brave thing. So when I feel that fear in my body, I know I've got to lean into that. That's a commitment I'm making to who I'm role modeling for. So that, that would be the, the two-parter that I'd encourage people to reflect on. And I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask what's the next accessible step that a person could take in terms of like putting this into practice. And I think just you've kind of done a double whammy in that answer, which is sit down and actually make the time and make the decision to think about this and reflect on this um, in order to be able to do that. And, and there are so many more things that they can do in terms of getting into the book. You talked about being brave and there's a whole section in there around your year of fear, which I wish we had time to go into, but people are going to have to check that out in the book because it's absolutely fantastic. Um, your book, The Leading Edge, Dream Big, Spark Change and Become the Leader the World Needs to, You to Be is absolutely fantastic, Holly. Thank you for writing it because uh, I think it'll help a lot of people and it'll bring perspective to leadership and hopefully help people really dig deep on their own purpose and and help uh, create a sense of um, why for themselves because the world needs more great leaders uh, like you and like the people that are listening to this conversation. How, how can people best connect with you? What's the best way for people to stay in touch and follow your work and engage with your work? Well, firstly, thank you so much. And I'm so glad you enjoyed the book uh, and it's leaders like you who I'm so glad that this is emboldening and encouraging and just continuing to remind that you what you're doing matters so much. And it's um, just fantastic that that's encouraged you further. So I'm, I'm very grateful to hear that. Um, for those who are interested, um, please connect with me on social media. Uh, you can find me on any platform of your choosing. 
Uh, and also you can reach out um, at holyransom.com. We're actually launching a challenge. We're turning the book into a 28-day challenge to actually help leaders go, look, I need some structure, maybe a bit of community support, maybe just a bit of focus to get some of these ideas into action. Um, so the book is really practical. We'll be pulling the, the book's content into a 28-day challenge to help people start to reach the edge of their potential as a leader. So we're starting on September 1. Would love if anyone listening wants to sign up for that. Um, so you can visit the website and find out more there. We'll also be posting about it all on the social channels. But, yeah, please would love you to join in that if you're up for taking the challenge on of, of finding your edge and thinking about what the contribution of that edge to the world might be. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we often see a lot in the space that we're both in is this disconnect between this was inspiring and it was motivating, but now what? And I think what you're mm-hmm. going to do in this 28-day challenge is bridge the gap between those two and and the generosity in which you show up and the spirit of generosity that you have is 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 second to none. So um, I'll put all the details to how people can join that in the show notes. I'll put all the links to your social media in the show notes so people can reach out and connect with you, which they absolutely should because not only are you an inspiring person, but I think the purpose that you have in which you set out to make the world a better place is a, is a very um, admirable one. And so, Holly, thanks so much for joining me on Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you so much for having me, Shane, and thank you so much for the thoughtfulness of your questions. It's been wonderful to talk with you. That's it for another week of Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.